Because even the oldest saint can find himself caught up in a storm of shame. Can any of you say amen to that? As long as you've known the Lord, sometimes you are overwhelmed with shame. I'll make three major points this morning. The first is that Satan's primary weapon to defeat us is destructive shame. The second is we must despise and reject shame and our particular story of shame and instead focus on God's story in our lives. And then if we fix our eyes on Jesus, we can be confident what? That we will be filled with joy. Hallelujah. And so to this first point, shame is Satan's primary weapon to disempower us. Let's take again a closer look at that verse, Hebrews 12:2. And we'll see that there are uh, six things to be focused on in this verse. There's someone to be aggressively focused on, first of all, and that someone, of course, is Jesus. Secondly, there's a reality to keep in mind that Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. So we can anticipate that we're going to experience the same things that he experienced. Third, that there's something to be endured, our own crosses and the shame events in our lives. Fourth, there is something to be rejected and despised, and that is this phenomenon of shame, and I will be focusing on that. And then fifth, there's something to receive, and that's joy. And then lastly, there's an inheritance to obtain eternal life. I want to start by saying that Jesus was born into what is known as a shame and honor culture. How many of you have heard those, those terms or are aware of that? Uh, body of knowledge. A lot of people have been thinking lately about how shame is in the Bible. Uh, maybe, maybe you noticed in our songs this morning that Hallett picked songs that were talking about shame and how God has taken away our shame. Well, Jesus was born into overlapping shame and honor cultures, wasn't he? He was born into the Middle East. Uh, the Hebrew culture, but he was also a part of the Roman culture. And in these cultures, there were certain features. For example, you are assessed as good or bad depending on what your community says about you. Number two, you want to bring honor to your family, to your community, and your nation, and God. And it's typified by phrases such as, for the glory of God, or if you're watching a movie like Ben-Hur or The Gladiator, you see the main characters or characters, soldiers, Roman soldiers saying, for the glory of Rome, for the honor of Rome, right? And so these are um, shame and honor cultures. We even remember David many times saying, let me not be put to shame. We read in the Bible, let my enemies be put to shame. 
And even today, among people from these cultures, we hear about honor killings, don't we? Where a family member has dishonored their family or their, their community, and so the family kills that individual family member in order to restore the family's honor in that community. Well, perhaps this might help us Westerners understand a little bit better what's meant by the shame of the cross. Have you ever thought about that? You know, he, he died a uh, criminal's death and that this was, this was shameful. But really it was much more than that for Jesus to go to the cross. In a Christianity Today article that Nathan shared with Bill and Bill shared with me, a, um, a writer named Andy uh, Crouch says this, the cross, after all, was far from just an instrument of execution. There were many ways for the Roman legal system to practice capital punishment, but the cross was specifically designed to maximize its victim's shame. From the whipping along the route to the place of crucifixion to the stripping of every article of clothing, even though Western art has often shied away from portraying this brutally humiliating aspect of Jesus' final hours. To the hours or days of exposure to the elements and the mockings of passers-by. Given the rushed and shoddy legal process that led to Jesus' conviction, observers along the road to Calvary would have had every reason to doubt his guilt. But no one would have doubted his complete and utter shame, and seeing his followers as under just as much threat of punishment and exclusion. No wonder most of them scattered and fled. So I would like you to picture Jesus fully naked on the cross, fully exposed, fully shamed in that culture. It brings it home in a new way. So what does shame actually mean? Steve, this isn't changing. There we go. Okay, the meaning of shame is it means humiliating exposure, dishonor, disgrace, and the confusion it brings along with it. Vine says to have a feeling of fear or shame that prevents a person from doing a thing. Shame is immobilizing. It, it makes you want to withdraw and hide and not move. The meaning of to scorn or despise uh, means to treat or regard with contempt, to think little or nothing of, to devalue, disesteem something, to take away its value, some synonyms are to despise, disregard, scorn, or spurn. So this is what Jesus did. He scorned, he despised the shame. What I'd like to do now is take you into a book review um, of this book called The Soul of Shame. It's by a man named Kurt Thompson who is a uh, psychiatrist and he's also a neurobiologist. In other words, he studies the brain 
And uh, I read this book uh, over the month of April, and it really helped me um, think about shame and expose shame in a new way. You know, we read that we are not ignorant of the devil's schemes, right? But I think shame is one uh, tool of the enemy that we need more understanding of, that we're not, we are a little bit, perhaps a little bit ignorant. So in this book, he brings out and exposes shame as a destructive force in our life. And he starts out by saying that shame is more than an emotion. I want to say that I tried to sum up what shame is, and I would say it's a, it's a painful emotional shift into a sense of inadequacy. It communicates to us, I am not enough. How many know that feeling? I am not enough. And it's, it's like a wave hits you and you can't think and so on. So his first point is that shame is more than an emotion. Listen to how he talks about it. One way to approach shame's essence is to understand it as an undercurrent of sensed emotion of which we may have either a slight or robust impression that should we put words to it, it would declare some version of, I am not enough, there is something wrong with me, I am bad, or I don't matter. Although the description of our experience of shame is often couched in words, its essence is first felt. Now I want to show you a video of two dogs. One of the dogs feels guilt, and one of the dogs feels shame. In other words, one of the dogs is saying to himself, I have done something bad. The other dog is saying to himself, I am a very bad dog. You see if you can tell which is which. ¿Quién fue? ¿Quién hizo esto? ¿Eh? ¿Quién de los dos fue? ¿Quién hizo esto? Quiero saber. Mira cómo me dejaron la plantilla. ¿Quién fue? ¿Eh? Odi. ¿Fuiste vos? ¿Fuiste vos, Odi? ¿Vos hiciste esto? No, no. Señor. Le estoy hablando. Le estoy hablando, señor. ¿Usted hizo esto? Mire. Mire para adelante. ¡Ey! Señor. Hiciste esto, ¿no? Vos me mordiste toda la plantilla. Mirá, no te alcanza con que me dejas así. Con la J, una de cada lado. Que ahora me mordé la plantilla también. ¿Te gusta morder todo? ¿Eh? Vos sos cómplice de esto, ¿sabes? Well, I think you could tell that Señor was the. Uh one who felt shame. So shame, first point, is more than an emotion. Secondly, shame disrupts and fragments the brain. Being a neuroscientist, uh, Dr. Thompson says that our brains have nine systems of thought going on all the time, like uh, departments in a company. And uh, 
each system, each department has its own job and its own function, but the systems need to communicate with each other for everything to flow well and for a good product to be produced. Well, when shame is introduced to the brain, um, the departments can't communicate with each other. It's things shut down, things come to a grinding halt, and no product is produced. And when you're caught in a storm of shame, your mind just seems to fragment and stay stuck and focus on a thought or two about how bad you are or how bad you were or that you won't be enough in the future. It's a very interesting phenomenon. Again, shame is the primary tool of Satan, and Satan prefers to keep shame hidden and subtle. A couple of quotes here. Shame is not just a consequence of something our first parents did in the Garden of Eden. It is the emotional weapon that evil uses to corrupt our relationships with God and each other and disintegrate any and all gifts of vocational vision and creativity. These gifts include any area of endeavor that promotes goodness, beauty, and joy in the lives of others. Shame, therefore, is not simply an unfortunate, random, emotional event that came with us out of the primordial evolutionary suit. It's both a source and a result of evil's active assault on God's creation. It's a way for evil to try to hold out until the new heaven and earth appear at the consummation of history. That was a revelation to me that shame shuts us down or seeks to shut us down so that we don't use our gifts and we cease to be fruitful for the Lord. His next point is each of us has a shame attendant working to inflame shame daily. You ever heard that guy whispering in your ear? Really, we know who it is, don't we? It's the accuser of the brethren. Listen to these words. One way to envision shame is as a personal attendant. Imagine that you have a completely devoted attendant attuned to every sensation, image, feeling, thought, and behavior you have. However, imagine that your shame attendant's intention is not good, is not to care for you, but rather to infuse nonverbal and verbal elements of judgment in every moment of your life. This attendant is waiting to offer advice, suggestions, and reflections with the intended purpose of disintegration. Shame lurks in your bedroom, your wardrobe, or your bathroom, especially the ones with really big mirrors. When we wake up each morning, our attendant greets us with the words, wow, look at you. You really didn't get enough sleep last night. What were you thinking? You move to the bathroom and take a shower and you are reminded that you look like you have put on a little more weight. And so on, he goes on and on. So each of us has this shame attendant working to disempower us. Human beings, he says, are storytellers, and we're continually telling a story that is appraising ourselves to ourselves. It's like there's a movie going on in the back of our mind that never shuts off, 
that is showing us our faults, our weaknesses, our problems, and our inadequacies. Shame in our story has devastating effects, doesn't it? Withdrawal, hiding, disconnection, isolation, confusion, relational paralysis, and a shutting down of God's given gifts. Here's another quote. When shame appears, especially in malignant forms, we are often driven to a felt sense of immobility. Our mind feels incapable of thinking. We may feel literally physically frozen in place when experiencing extreme humiliation. And if we are able to move, we feel like going somewhere we can hide and remain hidden without returning to engage others. No one needs to believe in God to know that this is the way it works. We have all been there and know this experience of disintegration to be true. Well, I'm ready to leave this depressing subject to some extent and say, thankfully, though, the Bible tells us what? You see the next point there that he makes, that we were created for joy and we were created to use our gifts. Listen to 1 Peter 1.8. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible. Some versions say unspeakable and full of glory. In John 16.33, Jesus said, in this world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer, or keep on rejoicing, for I, what, have overcome the world. And then in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, we read, rejoice always. What does rejoice mean? Doesn't it mean keep on expressing joy? Keep on expressing joy. Pray constantly, and in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you. And then finally, he says, we need to name it to tame it. We need to know what shame is, what it feels like, how it operates, that it tries to remain hidden. And we need to choose every day to reject shame. Well, like Jesus, we reject, if we reject and despise the shame, the story of shame events in our lives and instead focus on God's story, his big story, as well as our particular story in our lives, we will have joy. The Apostle Paul had shame, didn't he? I'd like to point out to you that Paul had persecuted Christians to the point of imprisonment and death. He said he was the last and the least and the foremost of sinners and that he was one as untimely born. He complained about a compulsive sin. Were you aware of that? In Romans seven nineteen, where he said, he didn't just say, I do the very evil that I don't want to do. He said, I practice the very evil that I don't want to do. He had a he had a prideful backstory that the Lord stripped away. He went from a Hebrew of Hebrews 
and blameless under the law to one who the Lord would show how much he should suffer for my name's sake. And then finally, he had an embarrassing physical problem, a disability of some kind. Most scholars think it was something wrong with his eyes, and so he had to have someone write for him. He had to often be led by the hand. And you know when the high, uh, when the high priest strikes him in the latter chapter of the Acts, and he says, you whitewashed tomb, um, he rebukes the high priest, and then someone tells him that it's the high priest, and he says, oh, I wouldn't have said that if I'd known it was the high priest. Well, a lot of scholars think he couldn't see who was who, even though the high priest would have been dressed in much more regal clothing than the others. And so Paul had his story of shame. And I want to say that I know your stories of know that some of you were born on the wrong side of the track, so to speak. I don't want to trigger you, but I want to expose the enemy and the lies that he's telling us. Some of us were born disadvantaged. Some said, I don't fit in and I will never fit in. Some have said recently, I don't have any purpose. I'm just taking up space. Some feel disqualified because they have a mental illness or they were abused as children. Some grew up in poverty. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a sex addict. I was a drug dealer. My parents didn't love me. I'm fat. I'm worthless. Or I'm, on a really bad day, I'm fat and worthless. I'm not good around people. Nobody loves me. I'll never be enough for him or her. I have this disability. And I know my story of shame. I grew up feeling like I wasn't quite smart enough. That the other men in my family had a leg up on me in intelligence. And so when I came to Christ as a high schooler, and I think even before that, I asked the Lord for wisdom. I was smart enough to know that there were other types of intelligence than IQ and being fast on your feet. So I saw in James that if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. And, and God gives generously and without reproach. And so I believe he's given me wisdom. By faith, I believe I have the mind of Christ. And the scriptures tell me that I understand spiritual things that the natural man doesn't understand. But in reading this book, you know what I realized? Is I, was, I have pursued wisdom for over 40 years as a reaction to feeling ashamed. And I don't even think it's a true story. It might, there might be some truth to it, but I've decided to reject that story and that shame. Instead, I'm going to rejoice in the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord.
the one who loves me, who bore on his back my sins, my shame and shame events, your sin, your shame, and your shame events, who for the joy set before him, he what? He despised the shame. He despised it all. And even became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Who is this King of glory? Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Who is the one who is the glory and the lifter of our heads? Jesus Christ, the righteous, and God, our Father, and the Holy Spirit. We praise God. Well, the, Paul, the Apostle Paul also rejected his shame. How did he do that? He separated his identity from his sin, first of all. In Romans 7, verse 20, one verse after we read how um, he practiced the very thing he hated, we read this. If I do the very thing I hate, it's no longer I who am doing it, but sin that dwells in me. See, so he separated his identity from his sin. To me, that's a key point. Secondly, he didn't hide his story of shame, but exploited it for the glory of God. Let's look together at Philippians um, chapter 2, where he writes this. Is it chapter 3, Bill? Chapter 3, 4 through 8. He says, I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. He didn't hide his story of shame but he exploited it for the glory of God. Thirdly, he fixed his eyes on the grace of God, didn't he? In 1 Corinthians 15.10, he says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored, labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. We see there that Paul it, it feels to me in that verse like Paul is almost saying, I compensated for my past by working harder than any of them. And then he catches himself and he says, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. And so he, he fastened his eyes upon the grace of God and gave God glory for everything. Then he identified God's story for his life in 2 Corinthians 12. Do you remember how we said that he had a disability of some kind? And he sought the Lord three times about that thorn in the flesh. And what did God say? 
He said, my grace is sufficient for you, for power, my power, is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And then you see him kind of swell in rejoicing, and he says, Therefore I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Hallelujah. You know, um, Jim, if I can pick on you for just a moment. You know, Jim sometimes wonders if he's doing all that he can possibly do for the kingdom. And he, 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 he gets uh, in a place of, uh, I don't know what to call it, but, but then he remembers the do-loss principle that God spoke to him and said, you're to take one day at a time and every day be obedient in that thing. That seems to me to be Jim's story. It's the thing. And Paul found it here for his life is that, is that God's power was being amplified in Paul's weakness, and he was content with that. And then finally, he chose to despise, scorn, forget what lay behind. Let's look at Philippians um, again. Philippians 3. 13 through 16. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are mature, have this attitude. And if in anything else you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. Doesn't that fit what we're talking about? Uh, we have signs all over our house that say, attitude is everything, pick a good one. And uh, Paul is saying, have this attitude of forgetting the shame that's behind. So I wanted to have some fun on PowerPoint, so I... Did a little drawing here, um, but I put a star by the key, the key place. If you want to glorify God, and you do have sin, let me assure you, and others have sinned against you, things that were outside your control, and over these things, we are prompted often to feel shame. Shame attendant is speaking to us, but if we reject the shame and focus on Jesus, we experience joy, we move toward people instead of away from people. We experience true koinonia, we use our gifts and creativity, and this gives great glory to God. Well, what is joy? Well, no, let's go first here. We were created for joy. In 1982, Leo Tolstoy wrote, Life cannot have any other purpose than joy and goodness. Only this purpose, joy, is ultimately worthy of life. This was long before the age of neuroscience. 
but long after the development of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which in 1647 declared that the chief end of man or humankind is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Later, C.S. Lewis, in his sermon, The Weight of Glory, writes of how glory for us humans is hearing that we are pleasing to the one whose pleasure we most long to fulfill. It is no more realized than when you hear our master say, well done, the common theme these voices herald is joy. They assume that the delight of God in Trinitarian fellowship is nothing, if not an invitation that he longs for us to join. The defining relational motif for humankind is not what we need to work, not that we need to work as hard as we can or do our best or to guarantee that our children will have a better life than we had. It is not about being right or the acquisition of power. Each of those and others like them play into the hand of shame's anxiety. No, rather we were created for joy. Well, I've been trying to think about what is joy. I, I haven't kind of come up with a satisfactory definition. Hallett, when you preached some years ago, I think you said it was just extreme or happiness or happiness on steroids. I am not quite, if I'm capturing it correctly, I'm not quite uh, in agreement with that. But one phrase that caught me in this book is that Thompson says, every person is born into this world looking for someone who is looking for them. I would submit that when they find each other, it is here where we see joy. Uh, is found. For example, a mother holding that brand new baby that just left her body. You see joy there. Or how about these scenes we see on the news or TV often of a, a, a soldier who's been deployed for a long time at his son's baseball game and he's the catcher and all of a sudden he takes his mask off and the little boy who's been pitching just screams with delight and runs to his dad, and they just cry and cry and cry. That's joy. Or kids playing hide-and-seek. You, you remember being a kid and playing hide-and-seek, and, you know, it's really cool not to be found for a while. But then, really, you do want to be found. You just want to be found after a really hard search. But if you don't get found, you're just left hanging, aren't you? And, you, you know, it's not satisfying. So I think there's joy when they find each other after a long search in hide-and-seek. How about a man and woman falling in love for the rest of their lives? You found the one that you've been looking for, and they have found you. There's joy. And then finally, a sinner surrendering to his Savior after years of struggle or, or resistance or maybe searching and finding his loving Savior. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous who need no repentance. All right, last point. If we fix our eyes on Jesus, we will be filled with joy. Here are just some scriptures that basically support that point, that heaven 
is about joy. God is about joy. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. But now I come to thee, Father, Jesus prayed in John 17, that these may have my joy made full in themselves. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. I have a vision for TCF that even more than we're experiencing that we would have here a culture of joy. Just that when an unbeliever enters, they would, they would sense the presence of God, but they would also see tremendous joy. And I think we can have that joy by scorning our shame, knowing each other's stories, not hiding it, knowing each other's stories, but then just choosing to love and forgetting that stuff. What do you think? Amen? Just joy unspeakable, joy inexpressible. Last slide. In Deuteronomy 30, we read where Moses was preaching to a new generation before they went into the promised land. He was a hundred and... Um, 20 years old at the time, and he knew he was not going into the promised land, but he ended his sermon, one of his sermons, with this, these words, challenging them to choose life. He said, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse, so choose life in order that you may live, your, you and your descendants. Choose life by loving the Lord your God, by obeying His voice and holding fast to Him. Fix your eyes on Jesus. For this is your life and the length of your days that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers. Well, Thompson says the same thing, but coming from a neuroscience background, he says attention is the engine of the mind's train. Ultimately, we become what we pay attention to. That to which we pay attention doubles back and governs us. Hence, our attention is deeply associated with either death or life. In many respects, life is not that complicated. On the cross, we see love and shame warring for our souls. Every minute of every day, we too must choose between shame and love. So let us fix our eyes on Jesus, amen? The author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. Now, I want to um, pray.
pray for any of you who may be in the middle of a shame storm. As I said, it can hit even the oldest and most experienced of saints. Like me, if you were, if you've become aware of some shame event that has been, you've been reacting to or thinking about too much and you'd like to shift your focus to Jesus, um, would you be bold enough to stand and let's just pray together. I'll be standing with you. Um, If you want to silence that shame attendant, the accuser of the brethren, and you want to say, Lord, I will reject the shame, and I will enter into that joy that has been set before me. Lord, you see these who are standing. We, We love each other, Lord. We know that these storms of shame can hit even the wisest of us, even the most strong of us, that at times the enemy, the accuser of the brethren comes and he says, you are not enough. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us to repent right now from these shame messages Repentance is simply changing your mind. And so, Lord, we, we, we choose right now to reject those thoughts, those voices, that painful psychological shift in our souls, and we choose to fix our eyes on Jesus, on God's story in our lives. Father, on the big story of Jesus on the cross for us, enduring the cross, despising the shame for the joy set before him of being at the right hand of God and inviting us to join him in his kingdom. We praise you, Lord. And now I pray for fortification of the spirits of those who are standing. Help us all, Lord, to discern quickly when shame is speaking to us and to reject that voice. Father, we thank you for your word that says we're not ignorant of the schemes of the devil and thank you for exposing shame more completely to us that wants to stay hidden and subtle. We thank you that you love us so much, Lord that both your love and rejecting shame was hanging on the cross in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Help us to choose life every moment of every day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.